Focusing on this morning, Romans chapter 9 from verse 14. What then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not therefore depend on man's desire or effort, but on God's mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore, God is mercy, on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. You've got uh, any experience at all of, of children, uh, whether it's as a parent or a grandparent or a teacher or whatever, then the refrain that you will be very accustomed to is uh, from almost the moment that they're able to speak it's not fair. It's not fair. Uh, children have, from the earliest age, uh, a very keen sense that they are being discriminated against for whatever reason. You know, it's not fair that I have to go to bed at 7 o'clock uh, when my sister gets to go to bed at 8 o'clock. It is not fair. Now, the parents may have a very good reason for uh, making a discrimination, for making the bedtimes differ like that. But in the eyes of the, of the child, everyone in the family should be treated the same. It's not fair. There's this deeply ingrained sense of natural justice and it's a particular sense of natural justice that means no one gets to discriminate. We've all got to be treated the same. And that sense uh, is reinforced uh, at school, uh, where the trend is for you know, everyone to get prizes. There are no winners, there are no, no losers. Everybody uh, is the same. And then, of course, you leave school and it's affirmed in adulthood with all the kind of legislation that we have, which uh, is against discriminatory practices, non-discriminatory legislation, and so on. Uh, now, please don't misunderstand. I'm not in anything that I'm saying uh, this morning implying that discrimination of any kind uh, is right. Uh, obviously, uh, racial uh, gender discrimination uh, is is not right and it's, uh, it's appropriate that there should be rules which uh, uh, create equal opportunities. But the point is that when society pays lip service at least to the idea that everyone should be treated the same way, then the notion that God chooses is hard for some to handle, hard for many to handle. And we're in a chapter, chapter 9 of Romans, which is hard for many to handle. The, the fact that God sends uh, that, that some people will go to hell rather than heaven is hard in itself for people to handle. The fact that God chooses some to heaven and chooses to overlook some is even harder. It becomes an objection to belief in Christianity. I can't believe in a God who chooses some to go to hell. Now, you may have had that objection yourself before you became a Christian. You may know many people who have that objection. And 
in the, in the face of that, feeling the heat of that objection, some Christians who would call themselves evangelicals uh, soft-pedal the kind of teaching that we have in Romans 9. Here's an example, uh, and this is from a guy uh, who's a prophet, Southwest Baptist Seminary, Frank Barber, and uh, this is how he puts it. The day God deals with evil, he will deal with all evil. In the meantime, God strives for as many people as possible to accept Jesus' death and resurrection as payment for their sins so they can live eternally with him. The sad fact is many will make the decision not to be part of God's heaven. God won't send them to hell, they'll send themselves. Now, what's wrong with that is that uh, you know, he is turning away from the teaching that God has actually chosen people and he is saying, well, you know, God's doing his best here. God's going to try as hard as he can to get as many people as possible to make a decision for Jesus. And the assumption is already that Jesus has died for all, and therefore there's a salvation to be had by everyone if only God could persuade them strongly enough to decide for Jesus. And so here's a picture of God, uh, an anemic God, uh, who really has got limited power, and we can only hope that his powers of persuasion are strong enough to persuade some to choose Jesus. And in contrast to this kind of soft soaping exercise, we have a chapter here which speaks about election in ever stronger terms. Paul is not uh, going down the gears. He's going up the gears as he goes through chapter 9 to 11. Uh, the way that he presents election is uh, ever stronger. Now, there are lots of people uh, who don't like the doctrine of election. Many of us have come to see that election is in fact a wonderful doctrine. Uh, and it's in fact the burden of, of uh, our sermon this morning to, to show that it's a, a Bible truth that exalts God and energizes evangelism. But not everybody sees that. And I don't want to assume that all of us this morning see that. And I want, as we start, to make sure that we all feel the, the force of objections to what Paul is teaching here uh, before we go on to see the answers that Paul gives to the objections that people feel. It's important for us, as we look at these verses from 14 to 18, to see that uh, the question that he's raising is the second of, uh, of uh, questions that occur in the chapter, the three questions. Uh, the first question was, has God's word failed? And that question was posed in relation to Israel, not en masse, turning to Jesus. In the light of what was promised regarding the Messiah and Israel, has God's promise failed, his word failed. And Paul has explained that the promises were always given to a remnant within Israel. Uh, he cites the example of uh, God choosing Isaac rather than Ishmael. And then from verse 11, he cites the example of God's choice of Jacob over Esau. And this is the radical, powerful example because uh, God's choice was made not only of the younger over the elder, but 
It was made before they were even born, before they had done anything good or bad. Yet before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose in election might stand not by works, but by him who calls, she was told, the elder shall serve the younger. Now, what, what some people find difficult uh, in coping with this is that it seems that God's election uh, is random. You know? Does God just pluck Jacob, uh, as it were, out of the, the air rather than Esau because neither uh, Jacob hasn't done anything to, to merit? So it kind of seems random. And uh, this objection that God's election is a, a random matter, that, this was expressed very famously by Burns. Uh, in a poem that he wrote, Holy Willie's Prayer. And in the prayer, Burns is lampooning this uh, guy called Willie Fisher, who is a hypocritical character. He sounds a real sneak. Uh, he, he wasn't a nice guy himself, and he used to go around snooping on people and reporting them to the minister for any misdemeanors that they had uh, made. And the poem opens with... Uh, Willie praying to God uh, in terms of election. And this, and obviously Burns is no fan of election. This is how he puts it. O thou that in the heavens does dwell, as it pleases best thyself, sends into heaven and tend to hell for thy glory, and know for any good or ill they've done for thee. So you, you get... You get the force of Burns' objection, you know, one, one to heaven, ten to hell, and it's all random. There's no sense or purpose to it all. Then there is uh, not just the objection that it's unjust because it takes no good of, of merit or demerit, but the objection uh, made that God should save everyone. God should save everyone. It's a very strong one in our own day. Our own day, it has this very strong feeling for inclusiveness. You know, uh, something's good. It's uh, demonstrating diversity and inclusiveness. Everybody should be incorporated. Therefore, God should choose everybody. That's the objection that people make to election. Well, no sooner has Paul raised the question... Is God unjust? And these two objections, it's random, uh, doesn't include everybody, are in the background. He answers with an emphatic, no, no, God is not unjust. And the reasons he gives are essentially three reasons in these few verses. First is, God is free to do what he wants to do. What's the first reason? Second reason is that we're talking about mercy and not justice. And mercy is a very different uh, thing from justice. It's discretionary. It's up to the person showing mercy to decide how he shows mercy. And then thirdly, God gets glory not just in showing mercy, but also in carrying out judgment. So these three things... Uh, First of all, God's free to do what he wants to do. Second, mercy is discretionary. Thirdly, God gains glory by judgment also. First of all then, God is free. God is free to choose. 
God is free to choose. Uh, Paul is quoting uh, here in verse 15, uh, quoting verses that are said to Moses. And this is where it's great that we're studying Exodus at night and Romans in the morning because we're finding that the, the two sets of studies are really intermeshing. Uh, in Exodus, uh, Moses has gone up to the mountain to receive the law. While he is up there, there is this mass defection. And ironically, when Moses is being told by God that you shall have uh, you shall not bow down to any graven image. What's happening down below is they're doing exactly that. Aaron has made a golden calf, and the people are engaging in idolatry. The Lord judges the people, first by the Levites putting to the sword those who are immediately involved, and then sending a plague. But more is expected, and it's at that point that Moses comes with this prayer that Paul echoes at the beginning of our chapter. A prayer that wishes that he would be cast away rather than Israel being cast away. Please forgive their sin, but if not, then blot me out from the book you have written. Now, God does not blot Moses out from the book, uh, nor does he blot out the whole nation and start over again with Moses as he had threatened. Instead, he promises to go with Moses and the people. My presence will go with you and I will give you rest. Then, chapter 33, Moses uh, asks the Lord to show him his glory. And this is one of, the, one of the Bible words that is used for revealing the character of God. When God shows his glory, or reveals his name, or shows his face, these are expressions of God revealing who he is. What's God like? He shows us when he shows his glory. And God, uh, in showing his glory, actually goes on to say that he will proclaim his name. So God's going to show his glory by proclaiming his name. We've already seen God do that. At the burning bush, God appeared to Moses and he revealed who he was by declaring his name. He says, I am Yahweh, I am the Lord. Back then, back at the burning bush, God was saying to Moses, I don't need anyone outside myself. I am the one who lives and who gives life. I was, I am, and I will be. I am independent of all. I need nothing from my creatures because I am the creator. And yet, I willingly commit to my people. I am a covenant God, and I will make a great promises uh, to you. God graciously commits himself in covenant, just as he had done to Abraham. And now uh, God is showing his character by revealing his name, which he says is, I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. You want to know who God is? Right there at the heart of who God is, he's the God who is free. The God who is sovereign. And he's sovereign to show compassion to whomever, whomsoever he wills. And to withhold it from whomsoever he wills. 
And so this is the first and the most essential thing to say in response to objections that God chooses. It's at the very heart of God's character that that's his right. He is sovereign. And it's absolutely preposterous for we who are his creatures to sit on a judgment seat and say, you shouldn't do that. God has every right to do as he pleases. God is free. Secondly, God acts in mercy, which is a different category from justice. Verse 16, it does not therefore depend on man's desire or effort, but on God's mercy. When we are uptight because God has chosen to save some, not others, we need to remember that we are talking about mercy, and mercy is different from justice. Justice, justice means everybody gets what they deserve. Mercy, everybody, uh, people get, people, sorry, people don't get what they deserve. Justice, people get what they deserve. Mercy, people don't get what they deserve deserved. The fact is that every one of us deserves hell. The fact is that every one of us deserves condemnation. Our desert is not heaven. Our desert is hell. But Paul has hammered this home relentlessly. Romans 3 verse 23. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 3.10, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. So God's election, God's choosing is done against the background of defiant, rebellious, wicked humanity. Uh, you see, somehow or other we get into our heads this idea that God is looking down on uh, a bunch of people who are really good, you know, really nice people. Uh, they're sincere, they're doing lots of good stuff, and, you know, they're just about there. They're just about in heaven, and, uh, you know, why on earth wouldn't God choose them? And that's so untrue to the fact. It's untrue to the, the way that things really are. And once we recognize that uh, each one of us is by nature a hell-deserving sinner, then we see that we are absolutely dependent on what? Justice or mercy? Mercy. You know, if, we ask for, if we ask for justice, we're back in the wrong horse. We ask for justice. There's only one place we end up, and it's hell. It's eternal punishment. Even Shakespeare got this. Shakespeare famously put in, into the, the uh, mouth of, of Hamlet, speaking to Polonius, uh, use every man after his desert, and who should escape whipping? Give everyone what they deserve, everyone will get a good whipping. That's, that's the background against which we see election. Justice would condemn us. The just thing is for God to condemn all of us. Could any one of us stand before a holy God who looks into your heart, who knows everything that you've done, who knows not just your actions and your words, but the motives behind your actions and your words, the secret inner spring of all that you do. Could any of us stand before God and think that we deserved His goodness and His heaven, His heaven which is a place where there is no sin, where all is holy, 
Luis Palau, the Argentinian evangelist, used to tell a story to illustrate the, the nature of mercy. And uh, in the story, a, a mother approached Napoleon asking a pardon for her son. The emperor replied that the young man had committed a certain offence twice, and justice demanded death. But I don't ask for justice, the mother explained. I plead for mercy. But your son does not deserve mercy, Napoleon replied. Sir, the woman cried, it would not be mercy if he deserved it, and mercy is all I ask for. Well then, the emperor replied, I will have mercy. And he spared the woman's son. So therefore, if anyone at all will be saved, it won't be based on justice. It will be based on mercy. Justice is when we get what we deserve. Mercy is when we don't get what we deserve. Mercy uh, is a completely different category from justice, uh, but also by its nature, it's discretionary. Uh, it is something which has no ought attached to it. There is an ought attached to justice. With justice, someone ought to be punished. Someone ought uh, to get uh, what they deserve. But God shows his mercy uh, freely. God shows his mercy not because there's any doubt that we are guilty based on strict justice. God shows his mercy not because we've paid back our debt to society, we've served our time, we've suffered enough, so he shows his mercy. These might be the grounds for a, a pardon, you know, a presidential or a royal pardon, but not with God. There's no question that the verdict was right. There's no question that we've been punished enough. God shows his mercy uh, to those who completely are undeserving. It's a sovereign act of God. He's free to show mercy. And so one of the implications of this is that salvation depends fundamentally on God rather than on our own acts. When Paul says, uh, so then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy, uh, the it that Paul mentions, this it is God's bestowal of mercy. It doesn't depend on God, uh, so it doesn't depend on man's decision to accept Jesus or on human effort uh, runs. It depends on God who has mercy. So the verse excludes in the clearest possible way the notion that our free will is the basic factor in divine election. Paul is saying God freely determines according to the counsel of his own will those to whom he shows mercy. So thirdly, God gains glory from judgment as well as from showing mercy. We've said uh, that it's not really proper, it's not appropriate for us to say God should show mercy to everyone. It's not appropriate to say it. But it would be a, a legitimate question. It would be okay to ask the question, why does God not show mercy to everyone? He's free to do whatever he wishes, isn't he? God could save 
all people. And indeed, that's what some uh, teachers in mainstream churches uh, proclaim. They proclaim a universal salvation so that everybody is saved in the end of the day. Universalism. Well, the only problem with that is that, that uh, it is completely contra- contradicted by the Bible. Every, uh, every time the Bible speaks about the, uh, the future life, there is a parting of the ways. Uh, Jesus speaks about uh, those uh, who follow the, the broad road leading to destruction, the narrow road leading to eternal life, uh, the sheep and the goats will be separate, and so on. Our scripture simply is full of the fact that not all will be saved. So the answer to the question, why doesn't God save everyone, seems to lie in the fact that there are ways that God shows his glory in judgment as well as in mercy. God can show his glory in ways in judgment that are different from the ways he shows his glory in mercy. Now, here we come to the difficult issues surrounding the hardening of Pharaoh's heart, because it's this that Paul uses to illustrate uh, God's freedom to judge as well as show mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. That's Exodus 9, 16. Now, just, you can quickly park that, and uh, there's an interesting digression here in that uh, Paul says, Scripture says that uh, I, for this reason, I chose uh, uh, to raise you up. Back in Exodus, uh, it's not Scripture, but it's the Lord who says, the Lord speaking through Moses. And it's one of the very, many instances that we have of, uh, in one part of the Bible, we have Scripture says, and in another part, the same, uh, the same text, the same verse, God says. What Scripture says is God says. It's one of our the ways in which we base our understanding of the Bible being God's very words. So that it's a natural, it's just a, a thing that Scripture does very easily to speak of Scripture as God's word and God's word as Scripture. Uh, so God speaks about raising up Pharaoh uh, to show his glory. God is seen to be greater in might and power than Pharaoh. This man who thought he was the greatest in all the world, who thought of himself as a god. <coughs> We're going to be seeing as we go through the, the plagues at night that uh, they speak of a great confrontation between the gods of Egypt and the one true God. Uh, later on, uh, they, the news of the Exodus will be noised abroad throughout the world so that people will hear of the exploits of this great God. And so... God's election isn't arbitrary. It's not without its reasons. Only occasionally are they given to us. And most often we have to receive in faith the knowledge that God is glorified in both mercy and in the withholding of mercy. Leon Morris points out in regard to hardening that There's no instance in the scriptures of God hardening someone who's not already hardened their own heart. What God's doing is he confirms people in their rebellion. He says, you will not have my grace, then let your decision be final. You will never know my rest. 
Unless we start to think of setting God of the Old Testament against the Jesus of the New, our precious Savior Jesus told his disciples that one of the reasons he spoke in parables was to do this very word of, of convincing people uh, and affirming people in their rebellion and their unbelief. The knowledge of, this, of the secrets of the kingdom of God has been given to you, but to others I speak in parables, so that though seeing they may not see, though hearing they may not understand. So Paul concludes, therefore God is mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. In application as we close, what ought this doctrine of election to do for us? It ought, first of all, to have a profound spiritual impact upon us. It ought to deliver us from petty ideas of God. If we accept these truths, these truths that God is sovereign in salvation, then we honor God in a way that uh, no other outlook honors God. God has given his proper place as Lord. He's not beholden. He's not waiting on the sidelines for my decision for Christ. We're bidden by submitting to this doctrine to let God be God. He is on the throne. He is omnipotent to save. He has ordained whatsoever comes to pass. He knows the future because he's ordained it. He is not some uh, helpless spectator wringing his hands to see what the outcome will be. We bow in reverence before his majesty. And at last we find ourselves in a place of proper worship as never before. Secondly, it enables our evangelism. Despite the contrary that many uh, use in their objection. God is in control in people's salvation and he has ordained to work through his word and therefore, it's an absurd accusation that people who believe in, in election will be passive and without passion in evangelism. Who is writing here? Paul. Was there any evangelist more passionate, who gave himself uh, more thoroughly to the work of world mission than Paul? Of course not. To know that God goes before us and that results are not dependent upon the limitations of our gifts and our speaking ability is a huge encouragement to eager and hopeful evangelists. And then finally, and I want to address this particularly to you if you're not a Christian this morning or you're not sure where you stand, the fact that God is merciful means that you have huge hope. Mercy is uh, great grounds for uh, hoping in God. Now, you might respond, what's the point if I can't make God save me and it's only his chosen ones who receive mercy? Well, you could make that objection, but really that's not the way to look at it. The, the way to look at it is this. 
Who are those who God has chosen? They are the ones who call on the Lord to show them mercy. Call on the Lord. Cry out to Jesus Christ. And he will hear your cry. That is the cry that he hears. He is the God who is the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. Mercy is his name. When we were children, we used to go um, with our father to visit my father's cousin, Norman, or, or Hodgen, as we knew him. And uh, he lived in a, a house in the north end of Skye without any electricity. Uh, there was no running water in the house. It was very primitive. Uh, he never left Skye his whole life. Um, he didn't feel terribly comfortable uh, in English. He, he was far more comfortable uh, conversing in Gaelic. And in earlier years, he had lived in the house with uh, his mother and uncle. And at family worship, it was him who read from the Bible and his mother prayed. We loved these, these visits, sitting in, in the house uh, in the evening as it was darker and darker. There was no light inside, everything uh, becoming more and more gloomy as the evening went on. And I just enjoyed playing with his two collies, Prince and Fly. And every Sunday, he would cycle to church. It was about probably two miles of a cycle ride. He never professed faith. And towards the end of, of uh, his life, my, my aunt would go down to look after him uh, as he became older. And eventually, he ended up in Portree Hospital. A few months ago, I, I was traveling with my aunt, and uh, I was asking her questions about uh, about Hodgin, and she told me that just before he passed away in the hospital, he'd been greatly exercised, and he had prayed aloud when she was there, and his prayer was, God have mercy on me, a sinner. That gave me tremendous comfort, because I believe with all my heart God heard that prayer, and that one day uh, we will meet uh, in glory uh, with the Lord Jesus. Because that is a prayer that God hears. God have mercy on me, a sinner. And friend, if you pray that prayer, you have every confidence to know that God will hear you. That he'll answer your prayer. That he'll make you his child. May he bless his word to us. Amen. Thank <laughs> you.